Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Today on the show, we have part two of our tragic horror live show. But we're doing it out of sequence. So in fact, this week's episode is the third act that we had at our live show at the Hackney Attic. We're swapping the acts around because the second act of the live show was The Mechanisms, whose storytelling musical cabaret involves loads and loads of different instruments and different people playing things, singing things, and so it takes a little longer to mix down. It's kind of like mixing an album. So that's going to be Act 3 next week. And that's why things might be a little bit out of order. So... Sit back, relax, and prepare yourself for tragic horror. So, uh, before we uh, before we introduce the last act, uh, pictures, please share them on there. Or we're on Facebook as well. Please share your pictures. Uh, please reach out to us. Uh, we tell you about our podcasts on there, and we uh, tell you about our new shows that are coming out, which are going to be coming out next year, right? Okay. So, our next performer, uh, she uh, did a perform with us for the first time in Edinburgh and we really loved what she did so we invited her back for Tragic Friends last month but she couldn't make that one so she's here tonight for Tragic Horror so put your hands together oh you can find her at www.emilysnee.co.uk and that's because her name is Emily Snee I'll be playing some songs for you. And um, when they said the theme was tragic horror, they said that was up to our own interpretation. Um, So this is a song about writer's block, um, which might not sound that horrific, but uh, for me it really is. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) agreement from the front row. Um, Okay, cool. So uh, this song does have a title, but I don't like it, so I'm not gonna tell you what it is.
experiences have been happening for her recently uh, and to top it off she was diagnosed with severe clinical depression um, and it's quite difficult to let anyone in that situation know that they're supported and for them to feel like that's genuine so I wrote this for her Stop. 
dancing around my words I'll try to give your lungs space to make sure that a cry never goes unheard so this might just be for now or it might not ever end you might work it out somehow but it's not like it's a tear to mend so I'll sit with you in the song for about four months and hadn't gotten around to it and then they invited me to do this night and I was like oh it's the time it's the right time for the song uh, so I wrote it which means it's a new song Ooh. Uh, that means I will fuck it up because <laughs> that's what happens with new songs um, but that's okay we'll give it a go uh, it's called The Machine <laughs> Taking a chance without facing a threat And when our half-hearted plans go amiss Who do you think we will blame for all this To save our mind from a deep, dark abyss Our path will dismiss the machine True it seems, oh, this big bad world is just so cruel to me. And as we proclaim, no one will contradict. Afraid of what sort of harm will inflict if we realize we've all slightly been tricked to think this is what we pick. And our hopes will fade as we wait for a sign. Losing our dreams in the heat of our prime. It's sad to think we will see only in time. If Drag you along till we all sing one terrible song. 
have to, I have to, I can make no choices, you see, the fault is not mine, no, it's all down to them, poor little old me. But um, if you Google me or find my website, that'll be up there in like the next month or two. So, awesome. Thank you very much, guys. Emily Snee, everybody. Emily Snee. Right, so our next performer, she kind of contacted me uh, about, about doing stand-up tragedy. And when I heard what, what her last sort of show that she was doing was called, I knew she was definitely right for tragic horror. Uh, her last show was called Werewolf Erotica She Wrote. So very appropriate to the horror, I think, uh, with the werewolf connection. Uh, you, can, uh, you can follow her at uh, Mathilda on Twitter. She is Mathilda Gregory! Hello. Thank you. Thank you for saying hello back. Always like that. Um. Yeah, so, um, werewolf erotica. Yeah. Um, so what happened was, um, in about 2007, I took a break from, I used to be a stand-up comedian. I took a break from being a stand-up comedian to concentrate on my other career, which was writing erotic novels. That's, that's basically a promotion. Um, I, I mean, it's an obvious career progression when you think about it. I mean, there's not, there's not that much difference between stand-up comedy and writing erotic novels. The main difference I found, people rarely ask me if I really do all the things in my stand-up comedy. <laughs> Which is a shame, because I, I do. Um, but, um, so what happened was, I ended up writing and publishing uh, three novels of, of werewolf erotica. Don't ask why, don't question it. You just have to accept it. I've had to. <laughs> just, just accept it. And what happened, I was really excited about writing these novels. I was really thrilled to be asked to write them and to have them published. Um, I worked really, really hard on them and um, when, they, when they came out, I, I thought this was gonna be huge. Um, you know, there are authors like Anne Rice, like Laurel K. Hamilton. They sell hundreds of thousands of books. I thought this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. I thought I'd never have to go back to stand-up comedy again. <laughs> yeah, hi. Um, so, um, yeah, what happened was books were published and really no one bought them or read them or, or cared or or anything. Um, what I found out really is that werewolf erotica is not a license to print money. It is solely a license to print werewolf erotica. <laughs> and I, I don't think you actually need a license, um, a license for that. And I was, I was sad, you know, I was very upset about this because, well, the thing is, I, I just wanted to tell stories. That's what I've always wanted to do with my life. I want to 
to tell stories. You know, sometimes they're about werewolves having sex. Not all the time. It's about 60-40, but that's, that's what I wanted to do. So I'm going to tell you a true story now. Um, this is a true story. Once upon a time, there was a man. He's a real man, and his name is Andreas Martinez. And I don't know that much about him. I've never met him. I've never even seen a picture of him. Um, all I know about him is he's in prison. He's in a high-security prison in California called Pelican Bay. He's a member of the Mexican Mafia. He's in prison for attempted murder. And he likes werewolf erotica. <laughs> Specifically, mine. <laughs> Um, what, I've, what I've discovered is in prisons in America, quite a lot of the, um, the books in the prison libraries, they get donated by like wives and mothers and girlfriends, so they end up with quite a lot of romance novels. So apparently, it's not that unusual for a man who's in the Mexican mafia, who's in prison for attempted murder, to read a book like this, with a cover like this, and the strap line, Who Can Tame the Wolf Inside? and enjoy it so much that he goes on Amazon and he orders the sequel, which has a cover like this. And the strap line, she's tamed him, but can he tame her? <laughs> Quick aside, I'm really good at writing strap lines. Um, he ordered the book online. When this book arrived at the prison, it was seized by prison authorities. They declared it contraband because it was apparently likely to incite violence. He's in the Mexican mafia. I wrote this book in four months. I don't know that I'm that good. Um, but, you know, now in that situation, I think another man, a lesser man than Andreas Martinez, would just read another book. <laughs> Not him. He took the prison to court. <laughs> he took the prison to court for two years to be allowed to read a book I wrote about werewolves having sex. This is a true story. His decision resulted in this. This is the court report. It's a legal document. I'm going to read you an extract from it. This is what it says. You can download this from the internet. I did. Petitioner Andreas Martin as a prison inmate ordered by mail a copy of The Silver Crown, a book by Matilda Madden. That's my pseudonym. The book was confiscated by prison authorities before it was delivered to the petitioner on the grounds that it was contraband, specifically erotica. Through a series of administrative appeals, the prison has clarified that it deems the book to be obscene and tending to incite violence, and is therefore subject to the rules governing contraband in prison. There are a great number of graphic sexual encounters, one per chapter, including detailed descriptions of intercourse, sodomy, 
oral genital contact, legal document, oral <laughs> anal contact, voyeurism, exhibitionism, and menage a trois. <laughs> Semen is mentioned. <laughs> I don't know why they felt the need to spare. You think at the end of that list, you'd think it probably has been mentioned. <laughs> Goes on to say this. The Silver Crown is no more violent than several other books available at the Shoe General Library at Pelican Bay, as well as recognised great works of literature, such as Homer's Iliad <laughs> and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. <laughs> this was quite an odd thing that happened to me. <laughs> Granted, we are dealing with a book isolated, passages of which, standing alone, may be considered sexually offensive, the question then becomes whether the work as a whole may be said to lack serious literary value because it is interlaced with pornography. What they decided to do was read the book and then assess whether it had enough literary merit for him to be allowed to read it despite the porn. Now, I think this document, you know, for a lot of people... Maybe it's quite an important document. Maybe it represents something about freedom, about human rights, about the idea that no matter who you are, no matter what your circumstances, you should be allowed access to the arts, no matter what your choice of the arts might be. But to me, as the author of the book this is about, this is something far more important. Because this is a 30-page long book review. <laughs> At one point in here, it says this about my book. It says, considerable effort went into the creation of the book and the plot is more than a sham. <laughs> more than a sham. If you were thinking she writes werewolf erotica, I bet the plots are a sham. Not only are you wrong, technically breaking the law. <laughs> but the most amazing thing it says about my book in here is it describes my book as perhaps less than Shakespearean. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> like, there is some doubt <laughs> as whether my werewolf erotica legally better than Shakespeare. So, you know, quite happy quite happy with that. Most of these quotes, they're from a guy called uh, Peter Orner. He's a literary author based in California. They got him to read the book and then give evidence in court as an expert witness about my werewolf erotica. And uh, he said this, he said this about the case. He said, um, Pelican Bay is one of the most violent prisons in California. They've got some extraordinarily serious problems. My humble thought, speaking as a writer, is that an inmate reading a book about werewolves having sex is the least of their problems. Which <laughs> is great. But of course, you know, this is essentially a courtroom drama. You want to know what happened, of course. Um, this is the judgment. It says this, it says, uh, we will be hard pressed to say the Silver Crown has significant literary value and is a work of great import. The book has a plot, a theme, 
freedom, I would say, is the main theme. I had no idea. <laughs> a woman freeing herself from the confines of a set life. Alfie represents a kind of freedom she never had with her husband, Blake. The, the complication, of course, is that he is a werewolf. <laughs> and a relationship with him interferes with her professional responsibility. You should know, she's a werewolf hunter. <laughs> that's, that's the issue. This involves a universal pro I'm not, a universal problem. Um, you have a certain responsibility to be one person, but life comes along and changes you by turning you into a werewolf. <laughs> it's not Tolstoy, fine, but this author knows how to move a story, carry out a plot with a theme, and how to give her characters a certain depth characteristic of literary fiction. In addition, judged quantitatively, the amount of offensive material in The Silver Crown is smaller than the portion of the book carrying forward the non-offensive plot. We conclude first that the prison failed to abide by governing statutes and regulations in judging the book to be obscene, and we go on to find that the book is not obscene, applying the correct definitions, and further, that it is not likely to incite violence. We therefore grant the writ and order the warden to give the book to the petitioner. So that's good, isn't it? He got the book after two years. <laughs> no pressure or anything. I hope he likes it. <laughs> Sequels can be quite hard. Anyway, all I know is so far he hasn't come to attempted murder me. Um, but that's the stuff. They're real books you can buy. I mean, you can buy them if you want. He, he, he really liked them. Um, but that's the end of my story. Thank you very much. <laughs> Okay, right, so, uh, right, uh, this is going to be the, the last uh, tragic performer, and then we're going to have a sing song and then a dance. Uh, that's all nice, isn't it? Uh, right, so our, our last performer uh, of the evening, who, who isn't a sing song, uh, is, <laughs> you can find her at Sajila Kershi on Twitter. Uh, we had her for the first time with us in, Ed in Edinburgh again, and we're really glad to get her back again. Uh, she's going to be doing a true story. So put your hands together for Sir Gina Kershey! Oh, bless you. Bless you for staying till the end of the night. Have you lost the will to live? No, because they've been amazing. I can't believe I'm going to line up with so many talented people. And I just heard your erotica story and I just thought, my God, my life sucks. It's so shit. I don't write erotica. I don't do erotica. I don't read erotica. I'm too scared to even masturbate in bed just in case Allah's watching. <laughs> with all my Asian dead relatives as well. Do you ever fear that? No, just... Just me. So, um, so the theme, right? So it's, um, by the way, I needed assistance, not because I have people. I wish I had people. I've got this condition called vertigo. It's a balance problem. Anyone else got it? No? What happens is like you're all sort of kind of blurry, so you're all beautiful. You're all looking beautiful tonight, uh, but I did need some assistance. Anyway, so, so horror, tragedy. Horror, tragedy. And I couldn't help but think of immigration. 
um, because I am an immigrant. If you're an immigrant, you're all son, daughter, grandson, granddaughter of an immigrant, can you give me a cheer? Woo! Oh, bless you. Brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, if you UKIP, BMP, a little bit racist, next 10 minutes is going to be a bit awkward, um, because I will be talking about immigration or, 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 or being the product, because it's like, it's seen as a horror thing, isn't it? It's seen as a horror thing. And I, and I don't know about you, but I think immigrants are bringing a lot to the country, and I'm, I am a, 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 an immigrant myself. Yeah, oh, bless. <laughs> I know the ego was thinking, I wish I'd said something funny for you to clap then, but yeah, that'll do, that'll do. Um, so um, <laughs> the thing is, what people don't realise is, um, I mean, I, I'm quite assimilated, you can hear me, I'm, I'm from Surrey, I'm quite assimilated. Uh, even growing up, my invisible friend was white, blonde, blue-eyed, and I called her Elizabeth, absolutely true. Um, and because I didn't want to bring in extra immigrants, even in invisible form, um, so I thought I was doing my bit back then. Um, but that's true, I did have an invisible friend called Elizabeth and she was blonde. And the thing is, I didn't know I was different. And then when I went back home, I mean, people who are from immigrant backgrounds, have you been back home and do you feel like the outsider back home? Yeah. Oh yes, oh that's great, that's lovely to hear that recognition. Because I went back to Pakistan, like, so my, my family are kind of nomadic immigrants in that um, my parents were from India side before India-Pakistan partition and then lots of lives were lost and stuff and they came over to the Pakistan side. Um, and then we moved to Germany, lived there, which I will tell the story, that's the story I'm going to tell. Um, I will go back to it. And then we moved around Europe and finally came here to the UK where I've been living ever since. Now, um, you go back home and for people who, who went back home, can you just shout out what, what you found was alienating going back to your motherland, as it were? <laughs> Food? Do, do, they, do they think you sounded different if you tried to speak the language? Attitude, attitude, yeah, because they do treat you like the outsider, because I was treated like that. For me, it was the toilets. It was the toilet system, right? So, in, in, I don't know if anyone's been to India, Pakistan, or those countries where you got what they call the dry toilet, a hole in the ground. Who's, who's used that? Yes? Yes? Awful. Now, you need bloody good knee strength, don't you, to use those toilets? I mean, if you've got arthritis, you're fucked, right? Um, and because you, you've got to balance. And so I learned to use that, got the training. I thought, right, from, from Karachi to Lahore, I'm going to take a train. Now, on the train, you'd think there was going to be a flushing toilet. Yes, there was a flush, to be fair. There was a flush for show. But what it was was a hole in the ground. Now, nobody told me that you need to use the toilet when it's, the train is standing still. Because I used the toilet when the train was moving. Of course, the wind when I had a little wee-wee, the wind blows everything back up. So I had splash back on my Mimsy, together with little pebbles from the ground coming up and hitting me, injuring my Mimsy. I guess that's where they got the term, I don't know, pebble dashing, I don't know, who knows. But um, the point is, I never feel like I've fitted in back home. So like, this is it, this is it, I am British. I am British, I'm Asian British, and that's it. Now I'm gonna tell you the story of how we got here. So I mentioned that my parents, uh, 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 we're living in Germany, there's a connection with Germany because my paternal granddad during the wartime lived in Germany and we don't know why, we don't know why, but something happened to him that made him very, very paranoid. He worked, he was a big man in pharmaceuticals and he was convinced that to his dying day that the Nazis were after him and he used to wear a bulletproof vest 24-7. Now, the bulletproof vest was a bit shit. I think he fashioned it out of some old duvet because I remember seeing it once, so I don't think it would have protected once at all. But anyway, there is a connection with Germany. So my dad gets a job with the embassy as a diplomat to go and live in Munich and leaves my mother with three children in Karachi. And he says, I'm going to go for work. She's fine with that. 
until she gets a letter one day with a photograph of a mystery beautiful blonde standing next to him. My mum's a very jealous woman. She goes into a jealous rage. Have you all been to Asian weddings? Right, have you seen the situation weddings? Have you seen the gold that they wear? Now that's what you get for your dowry. So she flogs all her gold at rock bottom prices, grabs four tickets for her three children and herself, turns up in Munich outside my dad's apartment, hoping to kick the shit out of this mystery blonde. When she turns up, of course, there's no one there because she just happens to be a work colleague. It's a very expensive mistake. We women are very passionate, aren't we? Um, anyway, so we stay there for a couple of years. And a lot of the people think, oh, it's men who drive these, this kind of migration to different countries, but it was my mother, because she wanted us to have an education in the UK. So the plan was, we we're gonna go to different countries over Europe, stay there a few months, and then come here. My dad buys one of those Scooby-Doo vans. Do you remember Scooby-Doo? We've got the fucking van! It's brilliant, right? So these are my siblings. So I'm seven years old, my brother's five, and my little sister, she's three. And we're, the day we leave, we go to the bank, and my parents say, right, now stay in the van, children, stay in the van. Okay, we will only be two minutes, stay in the van. Now, if you know anything about Asian timing, right, two minutes is two hours. And we know that. At that age, we know that. So they've gone. We see a park. And I say, quick, quick, let's go and have a play in the park. We start playing in the park. Lose track of time. There's no mobile phones. There's no watches. There's nothing, right? And we see that it gets a bit dark. And I think, oh, we should go back. We go back to the van. And my parents, they've pissed off. I know. It's like the McCanns. They've gone. They've left us completely alone. And so somehow, I'm quite bright, I managed to work out a route back to the apartment that we used to live in. Now, this apartment is now habitated by two gentlemen. They are in films, okay? They're in films. Now, they offered my parents a lot of money for my little sister, who's pretty, very pretty. But of course, they refused and they thought it was a joke. We turn up at the door, we knock on the door, and we say, oh, I've lost my mummy and daddy, can you please help us? They're really sinister, and I know the hairs on my back and neck are standing up, so I know they're a little bit dangerous. One of them whispers to the other one, and then he comes out and he goes, I'll take you somewhere, but don't worry, I'll take you to your parents. He's like, a little bit of feedback, can I move this pack? Um, and he takes us through like what seems like a forest, and it's now starting to rain, it's quite heavily raining, and I've never seen her Wi-Fi though at this stage, can I just say? Not the Sweeney, but I have read Hansel and Gretel, so I do know about stranger danger, and I know the hairs on the back of my neck are standing up, even though they're wet, they're standing up still, so I know that we're in danger of some sort, I can't work out why. I tell my brother and sister quickly, I said, look, listen, when he walks ahead of us, we're gonna run behind that tree and we're gonna hide. Now, he walks ahead of us, and he's shouting, he's going, make sure you're following me, make sure you're following me. As soon as I see that, give the signal, we run behind the tree and we're hiding there. And I'm petrified. My brother's teeth are chattering. My sister starts whimpering, what, mummy? She's so fucking irritated. She nearly gives the game away. Pretty, pretty younger sister. Oh, yeah, guess everything. Mummy and daddy's favourite. Not that I've got any issues about her, so it's good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Bless her. Anyway, so, so he's gone. He's decided to give up. He shouts and shouts for us, but he's, he just gives up and goes. We wait there for ages for, until we think it's safe. And we head towards the light at the other side of the forest. And we make it through the other side. And we get picked up by the American-based police. And by that time, it's this whirlwind. We've been asked questions. Who are you? Why did your parents abandon you? No, they didn't abandon us. We just came out of the van. No way left you. They're taking photos. There's a camera crew. There's all this chaos going. Now, you're probably thinking, where the fuck are their errant parents, right? 
My parents in the meanwhile, completely oblivious, are driving. We're all going on a summer holiday. Come on, everybody sing along. We're all going, and they've not even noticed that we're not joining in the chorus, right? <laughs> Fucking stupid. <laughs> they've not noticed. So my parents are still driving. My dad puts a radio on. There's an announcement. They've made a description of three children, three Asian children lost. There's not many Asians in those days, right? In Germany, they're lost. And my dad goes, hey, Hada, listen to this. There were three children, Asian children, living in Munich. If only we'd known, we could have invited them over for a play with our children. <laughs> yeah, really sharp there. So my mum goes, do you know what? But they are really quiet. They said, oh, you know what they like? They'll go to sleep all the time. Because they think we're asleep in the back. So my dad finally decides he should maybe stop the van before they go through Checkpoint Charlie. And um, my mum goes around the back. And she opens the doors and she said, oh my God, they're not here? And my dad said, don't be so stupid woman, look under stuff. It's like, <laughs> we are not flat pack Ikea kids, daddy, right? This is not Narnia, this is not the TARDIS, we are not here. Anyway, somehow their little brains work out that perhaps the children mentioned on the radio uh, might be their kids and we are reunited with them. We've had the most horrendous night of our lives. You know, possibly being kidnapped by porn filmmakers, by the way. Uh, it is the 70s. And, um, you know, my sister doesn't talk for days. And my dad walks over to them. The first thing he says, he looks really sheepishly at us. We're reunited. He goes, oopsie daisy, huh? <laughs> Silly mummy and daddy left you behind. Oopsie fucking daisy. <laughs> wow. Um, anyway, that is my story. Um, Sajila Kershi, everybody! Our live shows are over for 2014, but they'll be back in 2015. We're going to be doing four live shows in London. We're going to be taking the show back up to Edinburgh for another Edinburgh festival with the Free Fringe, if they'll have us. And we may be doing some other stand-up tragedy events. But even though we're not doing live shows, we are still going to be putting out a weekly podcast. And those podcasts are going to be made up of the best of the stuff that we've had over the last three years. So listen out for the tragedy on SoundCloud, iTunes and the Stitcher Smart Radio app and anything else where podcasts go and gather together on the internet and hang out with each other. If you want to follow the tragedy, then follow us on Twitter at StandUp4Tragedy, the number four. And you can like the tragedy or even make friends with the tragedy on Facebook as well, where we're StandUp Tragedy. Through social media, we'll be telling you when the podcasts come out and keeping you up to date with the future of Stand Up Tragedy, when our 2015 events are going to be, so you can come on down. We're not just continuing the tragedy in audio form, we're also continuing it in written form. We'll be putting out regular instalments of tragic fiction and non-fiction and poetry over on our blog, so you can find that blog and everything else stand-up tragedy related at www.standuptragedy.co.uk and if you want to contribute some tragedy to us if you'd like to write some tragedy and have it featured on our blog 
get in touch. We're upstandingtragedy at gmail.com. If you want to send us an email about anything, particularly if you want to submit some tragedy to us. Listen in next week for some more tragic horror. And for now, the tragedy, the tragedy is over. Is over. So let's all leave together. The This podcast was produced by me with sound recording from Stephen Harvey, music from George Bruffton and Samuel Wilson.